1: I'm Roland Oliphant, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from Ukraine as Russia increases ground attacks around Robotinia and the EU targets nearly 200 entities with Russian sanctions.
2: Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians
1: will finish the job.
2: Slava, Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us.
3: We're strong, we're Ukrainians.
1: Every weekday, we sit down with the leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 21st of February 2024, one year and 362 days since the full-scale invasion began. Today I'm joined by Joe Barnes and the usual presenters of the podcast, Francis Sternley and Dominic Nichols will be speaking to us from Kiev as well. I started with the latest news and updates from Ukraine. A number of uh, developments up and down the front line today. The latest is that more than 65 Russian soldiers have been killed in a high-Mars rocket strike. It has been claimed that was a strike on a base in the Donetsk region. and uh, Russian military bloggers have reported that three rockets struck the training ground of the 39th Separate Guards Motorized Rifle Brigade. That's in the occupied village of Trudivsky in southern Donetsk region, um, killing over 65 troops. We're not in a position to immediately confirm those figures, but pictures have emerged on social media showing a number, dozens of bodies strewn across a field and being collected. Um, the strike reportedly took place at around 9 a.m. Um, on Tuesday. So that's actually yesterday while the brigade was forming up. So waiting for more losses on that. That's a a significant development because High Mars, of course, made a big impact when it appeared on the battlefield in 2022. And we've heard a lot less of it recently. And it certainly caught the attention, this alleged attack of Russian commentators. The British Ministry of Defense says Russia has increased its ground attacks around Robotinia. So that is, again, the village at the bottom of that small kind of thumbnail-shaped salient in the front line that was created during the Ukraine's failed counteroffensive last summer. Um, Robertini is one of the villages the Ukrainians captured. Ministry of Defence says, this is the British Ministry of Defence in one of its uh, daily updates, this is one of several points along the front line where Russia has intensified attacks within the last week in an attempt to stretch Ukrainian forces and that the Russian army and air force operating in the era have sustained uh, heavy casualties. The ebb and tempo is con- combined with a recruitment drive is highly likely enabled russian forces to reconstitute the mod said and there's a slight those weasel words that, that the mod like to slip into those updates if you'll permit me a little bit of commentary for a second you know highly likely um we know for a fact all the reporting points to an intensification of russian activity all along the front line we talked about the loss of abdfko over the weekend and we've seen consistent reports of the russians pushing feeling they've got the initiative feeling that they've got the fire superiority, the spirit only in numbers, this is a moment for them to push forward. Which brings us back to really the biggest kind of battlefield development today, again, with the caveat that we can't immediately confirm or deny. So the Russians claimed, the Russian, uh, Sergei Shoigu, the Russian Minister of Defence, uh, claimed to Vladimir Putin that Russian forces have finally cleared the Ukrainian bridgehead on the... Southern, that is the left bank, the southern bank of the Dnipro River in Kherson region yesterday. Footage has surfaced online that shows Russian troops raising a flag in the town. But Ukraine's army has comprehensively, very, very strongly rebutted that. It said, uh, I quote, We officially informed that this information is not true. And this is from the Ukrainian army's southern front. The defense forces of southern Ukraine continue to hold their positions. And they added that the the Russians had launched an attack, but they'd been repulsed and claimed that essentially the Russians had falsely reported a success that they were unable to unable to actually deliver on. But again, this is enough further evidence, if it was needed, of, of the intensity of the pressure and the tempo of Russian operations up and down the line. A few other updates three people reportedly killed and twenty two injured are in Russian Uh, Air missile drone strikes over the past 24 hours, casualties reported in Dnipro, Donetsk, Kherson, Kharkiv and Sumy regions. And in an update to our previous report, a strike in Kramatorsk injured at least seven people with one person buried under the rubble. Ukraine also says that it has shot down seven Russian fighter jets in the space of a week. It says the latest to go down was an Su-34 fighter jet. And that was General Mykola Oleshchuk, the Ukrainian Air Force commander, writing on Telegram. There's one other thing that I wanted to focus on, which is the reported death of a very famous um, or very prominent Russian military blogger and soldier called Andrei Morozov. He was known, his co-son is Murs. Um, he was, uh, had a very large following on the Russian military blogging community. He is reported to have taken his own life, This morning, he left a very lengthy suicide note on his Telegram account. Now, it's significant for a number of reasons, but to walk you through the facts. So, uh, Morozov said in this lengthy suicide note that he had been ordered to delete a post that he published a couple of days ago where he said Russia had suffered 16,000 casualties during the four-month battle for Avdivka. And he claimed that after writing about those casualties, he'd basically been ordered by his regimental commander, to take down the post following pressure from above. And basically he's referring to, he referred explicitly to Vladimir Solovyov, the Russian broadcaster who had criticised him on his show. So the, these are the quotes from Morozov's from very, very lengthy post. Said he said he'd been under pressure from, quote, political prostitutes led by Vladimir Solovyov who are too chicken shit to pull the trigger themselves. I'll do it myself. I've shot myself if no one dares to take on this. Petty business. Russia is my home. Invaded by enemies. The survey are slickers of their superiors. Generals ready to sacrifice thousands of soldiers just to distinguish themselves. Journalists who build their careers on lies from the screen. And then the post goes on. It includes he's laid out his will. He said he wanted to be buried in the so-called Luhansk People's Republic alongside servicemen from that self-proclaimed republic who died before the full-scale invasion. Um, now, he's a... Moors was, you know, a a true believer. So his involvement in the whole Donbass war goes all the way back to 2014, 2015. And he had emerged as one of these really, really critical hyper-patriotic war bloggers. And if we go back to the first 18 months of the war, you'll remember us talking a lot about this incredibly turbulent, unruly bunch of basically guys with telegram channels whose gripe with the Russian command wasn't that they'd invaded Ukraine, it was that they'd done it so utterly incompetently. Um, he was a very, very loud in that camp, very prominent in that camp. His death silences another one of those voices, um, essentially. And if you stack that up with the imprisonment of Igor uh, strelkov um who, of course, was another prominent critical voice who was, again, deeply involved in events in Donbass in in 2014 and 2015, you're beginning to see if there's a systematic approach or not, But the fact is that the Kremlin is is going to be left with pretty pretty firm control on what was once a very unruly information space there. So, you know, whatever pressure he felt he was under that forced him to take his own life, as is being reported, it means that the critical right-wing is being what's the word silence taken off air in whatever way and that's pretty much where we are for military updates um joe i'm gonna come to you for the diplomatic and
4: political scene are you there hi roland hi folks yes from Brussels. let's start with eu member states of this morning agreed to a 13th round of punitive sanctions against russia aimed at crippling vladimir putin's war machine um The package of sanctions was deliberately timed, basically coincide with the two-year anniversary of the start of the full-scale invasion on February 24th. And for the first time, the EU has targeted Chinese and Indian companies that it basically accuses of helping support Russia's war effort. So we don't know the names of the companies yet. They're there to be published, we believe, on Friday when it enters into the EU's legal journal. But we do know that there are three companies from mainland China one from India, and that is also the firms from Turkey, which is a NATO member, so quite shocking in itself. Sri Lanka, Thailand, Serbia, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan also make up a list of 200 companies, so entities and individuals, as they call them. So this is what the sanctions proposal had to say. It said, it is also appropriate to include on that list certain other entities in third countries indirectly support Russia's military and industrial complex by trading in such components. So basically what they're saying is that these companies they've targeted have basically been helping Russia get hold of chips and various other components to basically rebuild tanks, rebuild build new missiles, items which are under Western sanctions. Um, So the measures were agreed this morning by EU ambassadors. That's Wednesday for those listening in the future. And it basically came after Hungary dropped its opposition to the package. But the EU have previously tried sanctioning Chinese firms, but basically have never reached an agreement on it until now. One of the reasons why is because they didn't do enough sort of diplomacy with Beijing itself. So when Beijing last caught wind of the EU trying to sanction Chinese firms, it basically got on the phone to various EU member states, started picking them off one by one, and eventually created enough pressure within the EU for member states to stop the Commission moving forward with the proposals. But absent from the sanctions uh, today, from the EU's perspective, were specific measures relating to the death of Alexei Navalny. And you'll have to forgive me here because I'm now sort of reading off of a press release. The Foreign Office has sent, that's the UK Foreign Office, out just as we were going live on air. But the UK has now uh, sanctioned six individuals it believes were heading up the penal colony where Alexei Navalny died on Friday after years of mistreatment. The sanctioned individuals will be subject to asset freezes and travel bans to UK. David Cameron, who's off to Brazil today to speak at a foreign ministerial meeting of the G20, had this to say, and I quote, It's clear that the Russian authorities saw Navalny as a threat and they tried repeatedly to silence him. FSB operatives poisoned him with Novichok in 2020. They imprisoned him for peaceful political activities and they sent him to an Arctic penal colony. No one should doubt the oppressive nature of the Russian system. That's why we are today sanctioning the most senior prison officials responsible for his custody in the penal colony where he spent his final months. Those responsible for Navalny's brutal treatment should be under no illusion. We hold them accountable. So they basically named six people. So Colonel Vadim Kalinin, who was the head of the IK-3 Arctic penal colony, also known as Polar Wolf, Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Sergei Kokov, Kors, Korskov, here's a deputy head, and then they announced the names of one, two, three, four more deputy heads. Again, sort of stepping into that realm of commentary. I must admit, this is all a bit of a waste of time in my eyes. How many of these prison guards hit by UK sanctions will one have travel plans to basically take their wives, their families, shopping in London um, to see all of our great landmarks, the Stonehenge, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, B, how many of them have assets in the UK that are basically worth being frozen? My prediction, and it is entirely a guess, but none of them at all. So yeah, that's interesting. They're moving to Brazil, where Lord Cameron of Chipping Norton, David Cameron, the Foreign Secretary, is going to be in a meeting with G20 foreign ministers, as I mentioned, that's in Rio today. He will basically condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine, as we always do at these meetings, as well as basically explaining what the UK is doing in response to Alexei Navalny's death. The Foreign Secretary, according to a sort of briefing from the Foreign Office, is going to highlight Russia's litany of hypocrisy over Ukraine. Again, this is what Cameron has to say. We need to adapt international rules and institutions to the challenges we face today. This means reforming the rules-based international order, not chattering it. The Kremlin plays lip service to the concepts like sovereignty while openly undermining them. Unlike Russia, we match our words with actions. Um, yep, ask Ukraine that, which is where it's forces suffer crippling ammo shortages and the like, but there we go. The US is also said to be readying a major package of sanctions in response to the death of Alexei Navalny. That's according to White House security spokesman John Kirby. He said there was no doubt that Vladimir Putin's government was behind Navalny's death. This is what Kirby had to say to reporters late on Tuesday. Uh, Whatever story the Russian government decides to tell the world, it's clear that President Putin and his government are responsible for Mr. Navalny's death. So John Kirby refused to sort of go into details of what the sanction packages would include. But uh, Kirby did say they would be devised to hold Russia accountable for what happened to Mr Navalny. And quite frankly, for all its actions over the course of this vicious and brutal war that has now raged on for over two years. So basically we expect sort of stuff in line with the G7 sanctions packages that the EU are adopting, the UK are adopting and targeting companies helping Russia exploit loopholes in western sanctions the pentagon has warned that ukraine could face a choice over cities to give up if us that's united states aid falls through this is what a u.s defense spokesman spokeswoman sorry sabrina singh had to say if we don't get the funding needed ukraine will have to make choices and decisions on what cities what towns they can hold uh, so Sabrina Singh urged the House of Representatives to pass the $95 billion aid package immediately. That includes some $60 billion for Ukraine, warning that not doing so will leave the US unable to deliver support the support needed. She added that the US can start delivering defence aid to UK- Ukraine pretty quickly once Congress passes the bill. She said as soon as Congress gives us the authority we will be able to i think pretty quickly deliver a pda that's not uh, a sort of public displays of affection but security assistance to ukrainians um and then finally an american woman faces up to 20 years in a russian jail for reportedly giving 50 dollars that's about 40 pounds to an organization raising money for the ukrainian army again i uh, excuse the pronunciation but kasina karolina has been charged with high treason after being arrested by the Russian FSB, that's the Federal Security Service, in the central Ural's city of Um The 33 year is the latest American basically locked up by Russia amid concerns that Vladimir Putin is essentially just cracking down on foreign nationals, using them as bargaining chips. So we look back at Evan Gershevitz, the Wall Street Journal reporter, who was arrested last year on espionage charges that his employer and the u.s government have strenuously denied the latest victim Kara Lena was detained on tuesday and is yeah is accused by the fsb of collecting funds which the fsb say we use to purchase tactical medical items equipment means of destruction and ammunition but It's sort of a really perilous time, and anyone that has this joint russian maybe u.s uh citizenship um and is spending time in russia basically just seems to be at risk um because Vladimir Putin is picking these people up, targeting them, if it's not him directly, it's his regime, knowing that there are people, high-profile people, that they will be able to be exchanged for. So it just seems to be a tactic that um, is being deployed more. So the FSB said that Miss Carolina had been acting against the security of her country. That's according to local news agencies. She's Russian-born, but has lived in Los Angeles for a while and has attained US citizenship in 2021. She was detained on a trip back to Russia to see her parents, analysts of her social media, Analysis of her social media profile suggests she attended the Ural Federal
1: University. Thank you very much for that, Joe, from the Pentagon. I mean, if we're back at the point where they're saying, the United States military is saying, you know, if we don't get the funding, Ukraine may have to make choices and decisions on what towns they can hold. It feels like, I can barely say, almost like we're back in in February 2022, when the, the prediction, the anticipation was of Ukraine catastrophically losing ground. I just... Commenting on what you're saying about American prisoners and exchanges, Um, Vladimir Putin did make a couple of comments. I believe recently, without naming the man, he talked about, when asked about Evan Gershkovich, um, he made a reference to a, a Russian patriot who had taken actions connected with the events in the North Caucasus. And he seems to be talking about the man who murdered Zelimhan Kanashkoshvili. Um, in Berlin in 2019, this guy is was travelling under the name Vadim Sokolov and was later identified as a man called Vadim Krasikov, um, who is believed to be a GIU assassin and is in prison. So those that that, that appears to be that there may be others, but that is the man we believe that the Russians are fishing to to secure an an exchange on the other bit of context which I want to add. Before we go, of course, is that all of this comes in the run-up to the, the Russian election, which will be next month. And if you, referring to what you were saying about the latest about the British response to Navalny and his murder, if you stack up also, I think, the sudden and unexplained death of a prominent critical right-wing propagandist and the imprisonment of people like Igor Strokov, you can see Vladimir Putin, I think, clearing the decks... For not only for the election, but for whatever is going to come afterwards. You can see him clearing both his left and his right flanks of potential critics to what end uh, we shall see. Joe, um, it has been a short space on our podcast later. We will be having some extremely interesting interviews related to the Polish border dispute with Ukraine and uh, also an interview with Jack Watling talking about uh, Rusi's latest report into Russia's unconventional warfare outside Ukraine, you know, spy GRU operations in Europe and Africa and other places. But Joe, could I come to you for a final thought, if you have one?
4: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing Jack's interview later, the Russia report fascinating, the post-Wagner life of the Russian influence in Africa is going to be really fascinating look at watching point for the next few years anyway. But I just want to point towards some polling that was done by the European Council on Foreign Relations, which is a Berlin-based think tank, that has basically found, it's done a very widespread poll, that only 10% of people it asked believe that Kyiv can actually win the war. And almost four times that number must think that Ukraine must accept a compromise settlement without regaining all the territory lost since the full scale russian invasion so um that it's a fairly lengthy poll it, it's say it surveyed 17,023 people across austria france germany greece hungary italy netherlands poland portugal romania spain and sweden but yeah and it just it's just it's really terrifying reading because there's obviously some people support ukraine more than others but have the politicians failed to get across that they can deliver one on that Promise that they've been making to help Ukraine win the war or at least come out with a very satisfactory outcome. And two, have they just not been selling it to the public that well? Have they not been sort of explaining why we are supporting Ukraine? The Eastern Europeans are very good at it. If you look to the Baltic states, the Poles, they say because it's an existential security threat if we allow Russia to steamroll through Ukraine. And what we're doing by supplying Ukraine, we are basically helping guarantee our security by tying up Russian forces for a long time to come and it's just, it just doesn't seem to yeah, the attitudes of now the people doesn't seem to correlate with some of the messages and I think the governments have slightly been losing track of how they can win over the people so for instance looking a deeper dive into the poll one of the points were was if the US cuts aid to Ukraine should the EU step up aid? only 20% of people respondents said yes 80, 80% of those said no or don't know 10% of people said a Russian victory, sorry, a Ukrainian victory is more likely. 20% of people said a Ukrainian Russian victory was more likely. Sorry to get those confused. Um and then you've got in from Romania, Italy, Greece, and Hungary, 50% or more of respondents in those countries support Ukraine negotiating a peace deal with Russia. So it's just it's I guess it's on one hand going to become equally hard to support for governments in those countries. To support ukraine on and on not that they all do so the italians are pretty good the greeks aren't fantastic but they've been helping behind the scenes we know about the hungarians if their publics don't sort of believe in it as much so i guess the messaging and two years on or fatigue sets in really need to set out why we're helping ukraine and what we're and what exactly we're doing is benefiting in what way and i'll stop there roland Thank you for that. I, I was just saying I saw Dom Nichols show up. He looks
1: like he's accepted an invitation to speak. Dom, are you there? Or whoever is using Dom's phone?
5: Yeah, we are. It's me and Francis. We were actually just listening, but then he suddenly sort of lobbed us into the space. But no, we're in Maidan Square, Maidan Square, and we sent you the pics. You talked yesterday about asking for pictures from the square, marking the 10 years since the, the revolution of dignity here. And so we've just sent you some pickies, which you can, uh, you can share if you so wish. We're looking up at the flower clock as we speak, looking up the hill, the flower clock. There's, um, there's, there's thousands, thousands of flags here to the fallen of the, the conflict since the full-scale invasion. And still these huge monuments here in the square, recognising the sacrifice of the, the heavenly hundred, as they say, the 107 people who were killed um, by government forces in, uh, in 2014. And there's uh, all of the enormous photographs attached to to each of the each of these statues, and all the way up the hill, as you're describing it, looking up the hill towards the flower clock and into the government security or the government central district, there's, uh, there are flowers and you know commemorative stones to the fallen here. So it's still very busy. Lots of people looking at the uh, looking at all the flags and the names, and still here in the square, there's all the hedgehogs. You remember they're sort of triangular shaped or the geometrically shaped metal blocks that are about uh, a metre and a half tall that would stop an armoured armored vehicle. So they're all, they're all sort of collected neatly and pushed to one side, but obviously just there, ready to be pulled out at a moment's notice if need be. But otherwise, it's pretty, pretty quiet here, pretty soggy, pretty rainy. You had an air alert earlier on today, but that didn't last that long. And from what we could tell, nobody took the blindest bit of notice. But people are out. It's a Wednesday afternoon. Traffic's pretty busy. It's a normal day in Kiev.
1: Fantastic. Thank you, Tom. Uh, w- would you be able to give us just, just a couple of words? I have mentioned the, the interview you chaps have done about, um, about Poland, the border, the blockade. Could you just give our listeners a very quick kind of rundown of what to expect and where you're going to be in the next couple of days?
6: Well, we've got lots of interviews uh, planned, Roland. Hi, it's Francis here. <laughs> I've just stolen the phone from Dom. We've got a few lined up. Again, we don't want to give the game away too much just because we don't want to jinx things, but some very senior interviews, uh, which we're looking forward to doing later in the week. Today, we were recording a special video version of the podcast live from Kiev to go out on the two-year anniversary this weekend. So that was our big project, hence why we couldn't join you live earlier on. But that went very well with a very special guest there as well. And um, you really get the sense here of life has to continue, life has to go on. Um, but you never know how things can change. And as Dom just said, you know, you can see the hedgehogs here. The statues are still covered in metal sheeting in case there are bombardments. It's still, as I said on, in yesterday's episode, this is a city that, yes, it's going on as normal, but it is a city that is geared towards and around war. And uh, we were chatting to somebody over lunch just a minute ago, sharing their memories of what it was like in those early days of the full-scale invasion, being in Kiev and being told you need to get out of the city because if you're not, the Russians will be here in a matter of hours. That was the reality that was confronted with people at that time. And obviously, we all know what happened since then. And he spoke about how important it was, Kiev's, um, President Zelensky's speech that really rallied people and made them realise that no, capital will not be abandoned. Um, but the other thing that was striking talking to him is we were asking how how regularly do you actually get a big major bombardments. we were obviously remember reporting on it around new year time and there were some late in december as well he said it's about once a week and it always happens usually in the middle of the night around 3 a.m and the reason for that is they're not trying to really target the infrastructure they're just trying to keep people awake they're trying to affect morale for people so uh, i thought that was also quite interesting we're obviously here just over a week um, and with David and Adelaide being longer than that, so I think we can expect to see something over that period, but obviously we, we hope not.
5: Roland, just one final one for me, if I may. I'm looking up at the flower clock here, so up, up, up the hill, on one of the big grassy or fairly muddy muddy banks, there's an enormous clock about 20 metres across um, into the side of the hill. But it actually says, the time it says is 20 past, 20 past 9 so I'm guessing it's not working properly. Was it? Is that fixed, Roland? Is that the time the first the first death occurred from the government snipers up on the rooftops back in the back in the Revolution of Dignity, or is it, or is it just the clock broken?
1: I think probably the clock is broken um, unless there's some other significance to twenty past nine. Because I remember being out of tumbling out of bed. I don't know. I mean, around eight o'clock ish or something that morning. And the fighting had already started. I was hurrying across the square and I was already hearing rifle fire and bodies were being carried back from that direction, from that street. See that street that goes up the hill next to the clock. People were carting bodies back on kind of improvised stretches made out of riot shields and things like that. It was, I believe it began just before that kind of time. I'd have to look at my phone calls. I remember calling the desk to tell them what was going on then don't think 20 past nine was out. I think it started a bit earlier than that. So my guess is that the clock, the clock may just be jammed, but it's possible. It, it is possible. There's a significance there I haven't spotted. So do ask around in Kiev if there's something to do with the clock. The clock was there, I think, at the time. Coming up, I spoke to Dr. Jack Watling, Senior Research Fellow for Land Warfare at the Royal United Services Institute, about his latest report into the threat from Russia's unconventional warfare outside Ukraine.
0: Yesterday,
1: David Knowles spoke to reporter Dominic Kovarwal of the Kiev Independent, who's been spending time on the Ukrainian-Polish border to understand better the disputes that Polish farmers have with Ukrainian exports. Here's their conversation.
2: Dominic,
3: it's lovely to talk to you. Can you just briefly introduce yourself to our audience? So I'm Dominic Kovarwal. I'm the business reporter at the Kiev Independent, although originally I'm uh, from Oxford. You've spent a lot of time on the Polish Border.
2: We've been reporting for months on the tensions, the the blockades by Polish farmers. Could you tell our listeners what it's all about? What did you see when you were there?
3: Yeah, actually, it was my first time going to the blockade last week. We arrived on, when was it? It was Wednesday 14th. It was Valentine's Day. And we were there for about five or six hours. And when we first arrived, we were kind of unsure where are all the trucks on the Ukrainian side because there there wasn't anything there. But when we crossed over, we walked for a kilometre and we just saw... It's just hundreds and hundreds of, of trucks. And there was a small group at the time It was only uh, maybe 20 or so Polish protesters who were kind of a mixture of farmers and also these truckers as well who've been protesting. And now they join in forces with the, with the farmers. And we were speaking with the drivers. We spoke with the, the protesters. And it's just, it was so tense. And everyone is so emotional. And the conditions are so grim for the drivers as well. I mean, we didn't see like any... You know, cafes, restaurants, or shops, or anything, not even really any toilet or water facilities either. We spoke to one guy who said he had to walk seven and a half kilometers just to get water. I mean, you can see on the side of the road where people have kind of gone to the toilet, you know, it's pretty grim. What did you learn from them about why they're doing this then? What did they tell you? So, from the Polish side, I mean, there's a lot of, of course, there's a lot of protests going on in Europe from the farmers. And they're protesting, you know, a variety of things, increased cost and the Green Deal from the EU as well. But the Polish are really emphasising this influx of Ukrainian grain, which they say is, is undermining local farmers. They also talk a lot about how poor quality Ukrainian food products are and that they use chemicals that are banned in the EU. And there was even one guy who was very emotional saying how Polish people are going to get sick from this, some may even die which sounded really extreme to us. So we, we spoke to an expert in, in Ukraine. She's from a big uh, Ukrainian agribusiness club. And she told us that, okay, there are some chemicals that Ukraine uses that are prohibited in the EU. But when all those products go over to Europe, they're, they're thoroughly checked and tested to make sure that everything is safe for people to eat. So, I mean, she told us, like, no one's going to get sick from eating Ukrainian food products. And, you know, I've been here many times and I live in Ukraine now and I've never been sick. We're going to take a little break before
2: we go on to the next question, because I believe our tea with milk has, has arrived. Dominic, you said that this is
3: um, not normal. It's not seen as normal to take tea no, with milk. No, I mean, what I've heard from, from some Ukrainian friends is, like, when they're babies or kids, that they have some tea with milk. But, you know, I, I, I can't drink tea black. Yeah, I know. It's, it's unusual. So you spoke to a lot of the
2: the, the the Polish side of this. What sense from the Ukrainians did you get? How they were, were there? Any people there from the Ukrainian side, or, or was it? So
3: on true? the, I mean, we just spoke to Ukrainian drivers. They're obviously furious because they've been stuck for days in in this queue. You know, the Polish drivers are saying that they are letting one truck through per hour, and when we were there, at that time it was two hundred and seventy trucks. So I mean, you do the math. It's it's days and days of of waiting. So. They, everyone was was very emotional the ukrainians were saying like we're being treated as if we're kind of not human actually there was a lot of arguments between protesters and the ukrainian sides we didn't see any but we heard from the ukrainian drivers also tensions with the police as well there's the kind of police going up and down uh, in big vans who are not really providing much information and I think the drivers are just kind of... What, what surprised me was a lot of them were quite supportive of the Polish farmers. And I think the Polish farmers, you know, they, I understand it's probably very difficult for them at, at this time. And probably they are losing some money and suddenly there's like all this competition from Ukraine. Although actually we, we now know that there's not that much Ukrainian grain going into Poland at the moment because of this new temporary corridor on the Black Sea, which has alleviated some of the uh, land exports. So they understand the Polish farmers. And one guy said, you know, I understand what they're trying to do, but they shouldn't be doing it at the border. Why don't they do it, you know, in Warsaw or like big cities? So it was the fact that they were just kind of stuck for days. It's really, really painful for the drivers. What was even more painful was this incident on February 11th when the Polish protesters spilled this grain. Oh, we saw these pictures. Yeah, this
2: sort of Ukrainian grain spilt over the road.
3: Yeah, yeah. You know, one Ukrainian guy said we need to lock those, those men up who did it. I think from the Ukrainian side, it's really painful to see grain which, you know, farmers here are really struggling to get that grain. Like so many fields are mined. Obviously, we don't know if that grain did come from a frontline region or an area that is uh, contaminated with mines. But nevertheless, it was kind of symbolic of that. Like Ukrainian farmers are really struggling at the moment. And for all their hard work just to be wasted to go on the floor. It's, it was pretty outrageous and, and it's worsening relations between Ukraine and Poland. I mean, that's the image we kind of got was that these kind of once very close allies in, in the fight against Russia. Now, like, the tensions are building up and relation is kind of hanging on by a thread. Did you
2: see any, um, any green shoots there? Do you see any sense that this might be resolved soon or what needs to happen? No,
3: there so- wasn't really, I didn't really feel that, to be honest. Ukrainian drivers were just kind of confused. Polish guards were saying, like, we're not going to speak to you until the ambassador comes here or, um, you know, our politicians need to do something. The Polish protesters actually don't feel that supported by their government. A lot of them were saying that they've kind of feel like they've been abandoned by their government and no one's really voicing their concerns in Warsaw. So it's it's hard to see how this, how this will end. I mean, today we saw the situation got even worse. It's February the 20th and actually more grain was spilled. A bunch of protesters, they kind of took over a train track and they unloaded the grain from one of the wagons and just, again, spilling it onto the floor, which that's just going to cause even more tensions and um, inflamed emotions on the Ukrainian side.
2: So this is really something that has to be sorted out by the diplomats, by the politicians? Yeah, I mean, that's,
3: sort of. I, I mean, I don't see any other way, really. You know, negotiations are ongoing and this isn't a dispute that's new, you know, there have been tensions with farmers since uh, April 2023. And uh, no one seems to have come to a solution just yet. The Ukrainian side are really saying, look, actually, really, there's not that much Ukrainian grain or, or agricultural products going into Poland at the moment. So even the Ukrainian side is a bit confused by the Polish protesters. Has there been much um economic impact then for Ukraine? I mean, I don't have any figures, but one of the, one of the hardest things to hear was like, the impact it's having on humanitarian and military aid. So we, we found a guy who's stuck in the queue with military aid and the protesters were saying they were going to allow military aid and humanitarian aid through. But that obviously isn't the case. I mean, like I said, we met a guy there who's been stuck for days and we spoke to the military aid company and they confirmed, yeah, this is a real problem that we're facing at the moment. So in terms of economic, I mean, it definitely is. I can't say in terms of figures what it's happening.
2: So a couple more quick questions. So when you say they're they're blocking them, is that physically? They're physically in the way of people trying to get past and then... Yeah,
3: so how how it looks, uh, how it actually looks is, um, you know, it's on the Polish side and they're blocking the trucks from going into Ukraine. They're not really blocking the trucks from coming out of Ukraine, they're blocking it from going into Ukraine. And they're just basically kind of standing in the middle of the road. The trucks are all kind of lined up on one side and there's a space in the road for civilian cars to go through, and they just divert the civilian cars into a different entrance point. So civilians are going through, from what we saw, um, and it's just really the trucks that are blocked at the moment. For, forgive me, forgive me, to explain this. This might be a really stupid
2: question. So they're blocking the trucks going into Ukraine, but not the trucks coming out. But yeah, I thought that yeah. would be
3: what you wanted to do. <laughs> well, right? Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, that's why I asked one of, yeah. one of the Polish protesters. I didn't give a particularly clear reason to me why they're doing this this way. Uh, They say that there are also like trucks being blocked on the Ukrainian side from where we were. We didn't see that, but um, there probably is or there could very well be. But we didn't see it.
2: As you were pulling away, what's your last image of of this tension on the border? What was the last thing you saw?
3: I mean, you know, it was the, the Polish protesters, you know, they were kind of surprisingly nice to us. I mean, maybe it's because I'm English and not a Ukrainian journalist, because they weren't so keen on Ukrainian media. But they, you know, I think they really wanted to just express their, their opinions. I think, I don't want to come across rude, but I think they're a little bit misguided. I don't believe, as some people say, that they are all pro-Russian infiltrators and saboteurs. I think that there are definitely people there who are pro-Russian, and we know at least one guy who attends a protest regularly. He's a trucker called Rafael Mechler. He's the owner of a trucking company. But he's become a big, big voice in the in the protests. And he has links to this party uh, confederation in Poland, which is led by a very pro-Putin politician. So the Polish guys will kind of want to make it clear to us, we support Ukraine, but at the same time, they need to listen to our concerns. But as I said, their concerns seems to be a little bit uninformed, misguided. Yeah, I think that's the best way of describing it. Absolutely. So you don't see a solution to this anytime soon? I don't, but I, you know, I don't know what's going on in the, in the government. I spoke briefly with the Ukrainian Agricultural Ministry last week, and they confirmed that negotiations are ongoing. But again, they're, they're a bit confused as to what to negotiate over. Any, any, any
2: final things you'd like to say to help our audience understand what's happening?
3: Well, we, we made a documentary about it. So if you want to see what it looks like physically and, and hear what people have to say, then uh, yeah, head on over to the Kiev Independent YouTube channel and have a watch. Dominic, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Earlier today, I spoke to Dr. Jack
1: Watling, the Senior Research Fellow for Land Warfare at the Royal United Services Institute, about his latest report into the threat from Russia's unconventional warfare outside Ukraine. Jack, welcome back to the podcast. You are the author, alongside Alexander Luke and Nick Reynolds, of a new report from RUSI called The Threat from Russia's Unconventional Warfare Beyond Ukraine, 2022 to 2024. It's a longish, meaty piece of work. Could you begin just by telling our listeners, what's the bottom line? How did this report come about? And what are your main findings that you're trying to get across here?
7: So if we think about how the Russians behaved after their initial invasion of Ukraine in 2014, they started blowing up warehouses around Europe, they engaged in political assassinations. And there was always the concern that they would do similar things this time around. And yet a lot of those threats didn't materialize. And so the basis at the starting point for the report was to try and understand why and to look at what the Russians were doing with these capabilities. And what we discovered were that there were a number of things that had occurred in the past in terms of the expulsion of Russian intelligence officers, the exposure of the personnel that were trained to do this, that meant that a lot of those capabilities were not in place. And the ones that were in place were largely used against Ukraine and therefore not available for other operations. But since the invasion, the Russians have started to rebuild that support architecture. And what they are laying the groundwork for is the ability to conduct subversion and even violent subversion in European countries. They are also pursuing a much more deliberate strategy of trying to break away countries that European states previously had relationships with, particularly in Africa, by bringing what was the Wagner Group under the control of the GRU directly, and through them, replacing essentially Western security assistance with a number of partners. And so there is a, a broad scope of malign activity, largely being conducted by the GRU, that is becoming more threatening over time. And the bottom line of the report is that we need to be able to counter that threat before it becomes severe.
1: Mm. And just to remind listeners that the GRU is the main intelligence directorate. That's the Russia's military intelligence branch, distinct from foreign intelligence and domestic security. It's really interesting. Could you quickly walk us through then? You're saying this is what you found is the Russians responding to an enormous intelligence failure and trying to fix that very briefly, could you sketch out what they've decided, as far as you understand, went wrong and how they fixed it? You know, are we talking about, I don't know, new structures? Have they have they created new agencies?
7: What have they done to address those problems? So they really found that there were three problems with their operations. The first one was honesty of assessment, right? The ability to accurately assess, are we actually able to have an effect if we do this activity? there had been a lot of dishonesty and a lot of incentives in the Russian services to report that you were doing things that you weren't actually doing. The way that they addressed that was that they have established committees inside the presidential administration, centres of special influence, as they call them, which are essentially setting the targets for the special services and measuring the, act, the results of that activity based on the effect that is had. So it's no longer about reporting we have launched X number of protests. It's much more focused on uh, the impact that that has had against the assigned objective. And so that's resolved some of the honesty issues. The second thing that they realized was that the exposure of their personnel highlighted that they were using old TTPs as essentially techniques, forms and methods that were not safe. And so the way that they recruit and train personnel has been restructured. They are they used to recruit very heavily from the military. They are now recruiting many more what they call clean skins or people who don't have a background associated with government. They're no longer carrying their service mobiles to their offices. There's various changes to the behaviors, but essentially they have become much more serious about operational security. And then the third thing that they recognized was that their support apparatus, the people that set up safe houses, make sure that operatives have money, make sure that they can go through what's termed legalization, which is essentially the formation of a, a cover identity, so you can operate illegally in, in another territory. This apparatus had been severely degraded, and so they have pursued quite aggressively the rebuilding of that support apparatus so that they can get into the countries that they are targeting through a number of vectors. One of them is exiled Russians or Russians who fled. Another is recruitment of students, and in particular students from foreign countries who have been to study in Russia. And a third, very important line of effort is co-option of organized crime. And so through these methods, they are trying to rebuild the infrastructure that allows them to get into target countries where they can then conduct operations. Right.
1: And when you say conduct operations, actually, I'd I'd just like to clarify a little thing here. You mentioned about Wagner coming under the GRU is this whole thing you're talking about a restructuring of the entire Russian intelligence edifice which as we know there is the SVR foreign intelligence there's the FSB which have their own overseas stuff there's the GRU is this everything or is it one particular agency that's been that's at the center of this overhaul
7: it's the GRU that is the at the center of this overhaul so the GIU has long had a strategic intelligence collection function which it is basically unchanged so that's recruiting agents inside target countries to get information out of those governments it has signals intelligence and technical intelligence functions they're basically unchanged but then it's always had a special operations function and that's really the bit that's being restructured so there's now a new service which is the service for special activities the General, who was in charge of the unit that oversaw the Skripal poisonings, uh, was promoted to become deputy head of service and put in charge of this branch of the GRU. Um, And he's been allocated a number of new units, which are now responsible for managing the build-up of illegal support structures and then the officers who are responsible for carrying out attacks on foreign countries. Right.
1: So I'm... (laughs) I didn't want to get bogged down in why the GRU restructured. I was interested. I wanted to throw it forward a bit, but it's just really fascinating, isn't it? This is the outfit. I mean, the GRU is a larger outfit than that, but it includes the outfit that was responsible for the script-out poisoning, for numbers of kind of very high-profile operations. That, if they didn't entirely go wrong, they were embarrassingly easily exposed by, by Bellingcat and, and open-source journalists like them. First of all, I suppose I've, I've got two questions just, Looking backwards before we look forward. One is that—is that partly what this is a response to? This not taking your mobile phone to work, which you you think that spies don't do that anyway, right? Is, is it a response to how easily they were exposed in the past? And my second question really is: I mean, how key were these intelligence failings to the ultimate failure of the initial Russian invasion of Ukraine in well two years ago now?
7: The Restructuring is very much a response to failure, right? They still think the concepts that underpin their playbook work, but the methods that they have for implementing that playbook were determined to be inadequate. The reforms actually started before Ukraine, but not only Ukraine, but the failure of their operation in Montenegro to overthrow the government, the failure of the operation in Ukraine to achieve essentially a seizure of power by recruited opposition members and the internal collapse of the Ukrainian state, which was the concept that made them so confident to invade Ukraine in the first place. And their two attempts now to overthrow the Moldovan government since the invasion of Ukraine have all given significant impetus to an understanding that they need to update how they approach these things. And so, yes, this is a, a response and a learning from failure. But what it also highlights is that the intent hasn't changed right this is not ah this has gone very badly let's stop doing it this is that didn't work let's work out how to make it work in the future Um, and that's why we should be concerned
1: right and you mentioned three countries i mean ukraine obviously montenegro which i think the telegraph Ben farmer of the telegraph covered that very in-depth at the times you go back into the archives you will find a series of articles by ben from several years ago relating to that case and moldova so my next question is how i mean how ready are these reforms how ready is this new structure already in place and what can we expect it to do are we to expect basically you're describing attempts to overthrow
7: governments Right. Absolutely. There is a very consistent playbook going all the way back to 1917, really. But the theory is mainly written in the 1930s, which is that you firstly try and polarize a society. You then try and mobilize a constituency that is responsive to the leadership of that part of a country's elite that you've managed to recruit. And you try and paralyze the part of the society that's on the other side of the polarized equation. Um and then you usually use violence because the premise is that it's the, ta- the other part of the society that is currently in power. You use violence to discredit the party that's in power, whether that is the use of violence during protests, provocations, essentially, to bring about a political crisis in the country that allows a transition of power to the party that you, are, um, that you have leverage over. And so this is the kind of methodology that they pursue. And in terms of how ready they are, they're not yet ready to perform these sorts of functions in European countries, and there isn't really the base of support. But there are a lot of le- elections coming up this year, and they will certainly be testing what they are able to do in terms of meddling in those elections.
1: Where we- could, could you name some countries, to be specific? Where should we be looking?
7: Well, I mean, you have elections the whole way across Europe at the moment. Obviously, I've already raised the prospect of Moldova. That's one that's a key target. But what I was about to flag was that where they have already started to employ some of these methods and had significant success is in Africa. And so it's wrong to say the Russians were behind or completely responsible for the coups that have swept West Africa. But they have encouraged and enabled and used the opportunity very effectively to supplant the West in Mali. Burkina Faso, and they are looking to do the same in Niger. They are working on winning the civil war that is currently taking place in Sudan. And they are using many of these methods to try and co opt those governments.
1: Well, let's talk about Africa because, of course, the line that's really caught the eyes of, of, of well, my fellow journalists, really, um, across the media is this concept you say that the um, uh, the GRU are referring to this in there. Tell me if I've got this right, referring to it in their own internal documents or referring to it jokingly, as the regime survival package. Could you tell us about the regime survival package, what it is, how much it costs, and what you get for your money?
7: Yeah, sure. So the Russians looked at, basically, they don't want to be isolated from sanctions. They also don't want countries that control critical minerals to be close to the West. Many of these countries are in the Middle East and Africa. And so they wanted to devise a strategy for flipping these countries alignment, basically. And the pitch that they made to the elites in these countries was, firstly, the West essentially tells you what to do. And yes, it's prepared to come and fight people in your country. But it fights the people it wants to fight, it doesn't give you the power to formulate your own sovereign choices. Whereas what we will do is we will provide you with troops, and they will respond to your Targeting priorities, essentially. Of course, if we do that, then we use Russian counterpartisan methods, which are fairly brutal. The West is going to leave, the UN is going to get upset, the Security Council might try and pass resolutions, although we'll protect you there, and they might try and economically push back on you. But what we can do is we can offer you propaganda support so that you can sell the policy to your own population. We can give you diplomatic protection internationally. And in terms of how you pay for it, we can get you out of the vulnerability of debt by you essentially offering mining concessions and concessions of natural resources to Russian companies. We will then continue to pay tax to you, but the profits underpin the operational costs of what we're doing. And so you essentially get a military capability for free because that money would have been going to Western companies if it wasn't coming to us anyway. And so this is quite an attractive offer, because it gives the countries that in many cases feel like they've been neglected by the West, particularly in the last couple of years, where the priority has very much been on European security, that they are regaining the power of choice and assuring regime survival. The problem is, and the Russians recognize this in their own discourse, is that it's essentially a a colonial project because they are also making these countries dependent upon themselves and isolating them from other potential partners. And once they do that, then they have a huge amount of power and leverage in those countries.
1: Mm. You mentioned Sudan. Just for clarity for our listeners, there was a civil war in Sudan between the rapid support forces headed by a a guy called Hemeti um and the regular army chap could you just clarify which side the russian is trying russia is trying to win
7: that war for the rsf
1: for the rsf um and i mean i suppose the next logical question is i mean there's, there's a number of next logical questions one is we're right to think that the russians aren't looking at africa as an isolated thing this is part of a one of the points you make in the reports this is they're looking at this as an expansion of the theatre of confrontation beyond Ukraine.
7: Yes, which is very consistent with their methodologies during the Cold War, right, where they realised that if they distracted the West, if they set fires elsewhere, then they could move policy attention away from the core issue. And so this is aligned with a attempt to try and exacerbate the sense of threat and alarm, while also moving that threat away from a solution, which is to arm and support Ukraine, right? Because if they ramp up the threat in a way that encourages continued arm and support for Ukraine, then uh, they expand the problem that they have. Whereas if they can break the relationship with Ukraine by shifting Western attention elsewhere, then this assists their main effort, which is still the subjugation of Ukraine.
1: You, I mean, you describe, I mean, in Africa, Quite a well thought out thing, and, the, and this restructuring of the operational kind of support network in Europe as well, I suppose in Africa and in Europe. I mean, is anybody contesting this? I mean, are we, is this another case of the West? I don't know, maybe the West has taken a lot of stick, right, throughout the Ukraine war, throughout the crisis for waking up to things a bit late and not responding. I mean, do you think, from your own research, from the conversations you've had with people, that Western governments are alive to this threat? Are they responding? Are the Russians being contested in this space in Africa? Or at the moment, do they have more or less a freak out?
7: I mean, I think if you look at the number of arrests and expulsions of Russian agents that have happened over the last couple of years in Europe, arrests in the Netherlands, in Germany, and Sweden, all over the place, in the UK... It's evident when you start seeing spies being arrested, it's not evidence that there's a terrible problem of penetration. It's usually evidence that the system is fighting back. And um, in that sense, yes, there is an effort to contest. The Moldovan attempts failed, or the Russian attempts to destabilize Moldova failed, partly because of warning and therefore the ability of the Moldovan state to react and to disrupt what the Russians were planning on doing. So... There is an attempt to push back in some areas. However, we have a system of government which I think has become more and more like this over the course of the war on terror, which thinks at relatively small scale and becomes quite myopically focused on single issues. And really that's driven by an inability to delegate, an inability to empower people to have authority without reference back to deal with a problem and make decisions. When you have decisions that are very, very centralized, there is simply a bottleneck on how many decisions that can be made by the small number of people that are empowered to make them. And so what that leads to is, yes, not much of a policy response when it comes to Sudan or Mali and so on. And, you know, the collapse of a policy over 10 years of operating in Mali to try and bring peace to that country has now completely collapsed. And it's barely registered in the news here the day the coup happened in Mali, there were maybe two days of coverage. But the fact that 10 years of effort has been completely wiped out, it has barely registered. And that's a good example of where it's quite interesting, because a lot of our strategic documents in the West talk about the need to compete. But we're not really competing, right? We are ruthlessly prioritizing where we actually invest our time and resource.
1: Does that mean that part of the problem is that part of what the Russians are saying to their potential clients in these parts of Africa kind of has a ring of truth to it or, or more than just an element of truth that look, the West has neglected you. The West has come here and sent troops to run all over your country killing jihadis, but they haven't really paid attention to you. They have got distracted by Ukraine. The civil war broke out in Sudan and all they did was, you know, they, they evacuated their people, but they've, they've left it to rot. I mean, is in your view, do you think that Part of the problem is the West neglect.
7: It's not so much Western neglect. It's the lack of strategy. It's the stagnation of policy. It's the fact that we couldn't explain to the Malian military how we were going to get to a position where there wasn't a rebellion in the country and they actually ran their own affairs. We couldn't explain what the theory of change was. And the Russians came with a more compelling one. A lot of these countries do feel resentful about, on the one hand the very, very firm, vehement criticism that we have for them over human rights and other issues. But in parallel to that, the inability to provide resource to resolve many of the problems compared to how quickly we mobilized in support of issues that directly threatened us. Now, there are very, very obvious reasons why uh, Ukraine is a more serious security threat for the United Kingdom, uh, or Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a more severe national security threat for the United Kingdom, than the destabilization of Mali, period. That's just a true statement. But when you've used language which is about the universality of human rights, the fact that all things are equally important in these areas, then you are actually making commitments to people. And there is an increasingly cynical view of the West's commitment to these things on an even playing field. And so, yeah, the Russians are tapping into what is resentment caused by genuine policy failures or a lack of imagination.
1: Mm. I wonder if I mean you and I were having a discussion at a, at a well I, we were no briefing about this the other day, and one of the things occurring to me, which seemed a bit maybe slightly too broad really, but, but it occurred to me that that the contests seemed to be even at a much larger level, which is that we, and we've talked about it throughout the Ukraine war, the kind of the democratic handicap when it comes to kind of strategic thinking. And it seemed to me from what you're describing that what you seem to be saying was that the Russian government, the Russian entire apparatus is able to think about and be committed to foreign policy, just to be interested in it and to devote resources to it in a way that our government just isn't really set up to do. I know that's a very big woolly thought, but do you think there's something
7: in there I think there are lots and lots of weaknesses in the Russian system. And while Russian services do often have a very clear view of what the intent is, right, this is what we should achieve, the plans that they have for dealing with that are all over the place a lot of the time. And whose plan is implemented is often very personality driven. So we shouldn't exaggerate the competence of malevolence, if that makes sense. And the failures that they had in the Ukraine operation are a very good example of how they get things catastrophically wrong. However, there is often a smugness that we have of saying, well, our system's clearly better. And to take a good example, you know, General Solushni, the head of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, has learned an awful lot during his time in command because of the problems that he's dealt with. He's now been removed from post for several reasons, but one of them relates to confidence in him over the failure of the Ukrainian offensive. General Avrianov, who got his troops exposed, the support apparatus wrecked and participated in multiple unsuccessful operations, was promoted and given a much larger organization in the Russian system, despite failure, and has now started succeeding in delivering some of the objectives that he's being given. The point is that when you have people who despite can stay in post and learn and can be there for quite a long time you do end up with officials who really understand issues. And that can mean that you can be very effective. So there are pros and cons. I wouldn't say it's as simple as one system is inherently better than the other. But we should acknowledge that we have weaknesses in the way that we go about these things. And we have, a- and we have agency in fixing those weaknesses as well. There's a lot of process of government stuff, which is boring, but needs to be resolved, especially that capacity to delegate authority to deal with multiple problems simultaneously. Because when you're talking about a conflict at this scale in Ukraine, the number of competing things that have to be done is beyond the capacity for one or two people to manage.
1: Yes. I mean, I suppose I was getting at, I mean, look, I'm a foreign correspondent. I deal with foreign news. You deal with basically foreign defense, stuff in the same kind of area. The fact is that not a lot of many people not a great many people in the country are as interested in that kind of thing as we are and so we all tend to get very frustrated to say look don't there is an absolutely era defining war going in Ukraine and generally you know very often people are just thinking more about house prices and the next ev-
7: <laughs> you know the
1: next election and cost of living and stuff that because it's not their day job it's not something they obsess about all the time
7: the and two it, are the two are directly related but yes
1: Right. <laughs> and that therefore there is a that there can be an aversion to making the decisions that perhaps someone like you and I are up to our eyeballs in this story really want to see made, but don't get made. And just to come back to something that I know you've spoken about before, I mean you wrote a piece I think it was last summer, but quite quite an outspoken piece, if I may say so, couched in Russi-ish, think tankish language, kind of banging the table and saying, Look, why haven't these long-term decisions being made about basically about industrial capacity and arms supply and all those things. All those things are where there's a very long lead between making the decision and having the impact on the battlefield. Do you see a link between those two, you know, what you're talking about uh, in this case and in that case, which is very acute at the moment, right? I mean, we're talking just this week about the loss of Avdivka because there aren't enough shells. Is it the same kind of thing? And I know we're getting into a big kind of macro philosophical
7: discussion about the state of democracy <laughs> well I'll, I'll try and bring it, i'll try and bring it back i'll try and bring it back to the russian special services we've had a long-term project of cracking open russian missiles when they land on ukraine and mapping the supply chains behind them uavs other pieces of equipment and throughout the war all russian complex weapons have been completely dependent upon supplies of chips so ele- microelectronic components made in europe and the united states And the production capacity for the Russian missile program has increased month on month for the last year, even though we know exactly which 89 critical components they need out of our industrial base. And we have failed to stop that. We failed to disrupt it fundamentally. And so that does bite at quite that. That brings up questions over the basic competence of the implementation of policy, because ministerial intent is actually pretty clear on this one. It is stop that happening. We haven't managed to do it. I don't want to particularly get into the weeds on it now, but excuses about it not being possible are rather tenuous. Uh, Where we run into difficulties is when there are trade-offs that have to be made. Yes, we could achieve that objective, but it would mean taking legal action against this company and therefore bankrupting it, for example. And all of a sudden, everyone gets cold feet because actually that company makes much more money for the economy selling stuff somewhere else. So it's not necessarily that we don't have the levers, but we very quickly walk ourselves back from what was quite a clear purpose. And that does come around and hurt us. Jack, thank you so much for once again an absolutely fascinating discussion. You're
1: a very busy man. It's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast.
7: No, thank you for the
1: invitation. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to Ukraine, the latest. Your support and attention means so much to all of us. And just in case you didn't know, The Telegraph runs another podcast you may be interested in. Battle Lines is our weekly global affairs and defence podcast where we look at conflicts and unrest around the world with The Telegraph's Sterling Foreign Desk. On Battle Lines, you'll hear updates and news on everything from the violence in the Middle East and the Red Sea, civil wars in Sudan and Myanmar, to unrest in Ecuador. Join myself, Roland Oliphant, Sophia yan and natalia vasilova on battle Lines, published every friday ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the telegraph to support our work and to stay on top of all our ukraine news analysis and dispatches from the ground please subscribe to the telegraph you can get your first three months for just one pound at telegraph.co.uk forward stroke ukraine or sign up to dispatches our foreign affairs newsletter bringing stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. We also do the same for other breaking international stories. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow the Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Giles Gere, Adelie Poisman-Ponte and Georgia Cohn. Executive Producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.